Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is engineer-producer Justin Corlew. First of all, I've always believed that musicians, artists, engineers, everybody should have a SoundCloud account because that's where you get to share your mixes. That's where you get to share your songs with collaborators, with managers, with people in the industry. And not only that, it's fairly easy to make it private if you need to. So it was really good to have an account like that. When SoundCloud first started, it was just for artists for the most part to do those things in particular. Then it changed. Then in order to get bigger, in order to make more money, they tried to go more like Spotify in that direction where suddenly they had licensing deals with labels and they needed to bring in a lot more money. They put advertising on the platform and just try to grow it a lot bigger. Well, last week they cut 20% of their workforce. And according to SoundCloud, it was because of the changing economic climate and financial market headwinds combined with inflation and geo instability. And apparently that was affecting their advertising business. Making money off of artists is one thing, but it's not enough to keep going in the direction they want to go. So advertising is a big deal. Now, here's the thing. SoundCloud hasn't updated in a few years. And now even insiders think that there may be some tech issues now that staff has been cut. So it might be best to have an alternative lined up for the future if you're a SoundCloud user, you're an artist, you're a musician, you're a songwriter. There's lots of competitors out there now, and some of them have better deals than SoundCloud. For instance, Bandcamp, Reverb Nation, Beta, Disco, Audio Mac. There's a lot of different ones. So now you're no longer tied to SoundCloud. So I'm not saying you should get off of SoundCloud. I'm not saying you should jump because they claim they're going to upgrade. They're going to update everything. It's going to be more modern and maybe they will, but you should have an eye on an alternative just in case you need it. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Also, I'm pleased to announce that the fifth edition of my Mixing Engineers Handbook is now available. It's totally updated and includes new sections on mixing and immersive audio, self-mastering, new mixer interviews, and much more. Get your copy at a special discounted price at bobbyosinski.com forward slash handbook. You can also find it on Amazon and Apple Books. And remember, you can learn all about the latest in music, audio, and production news when you sign up for my newsletter at bobbyosinski.com. There you'll also find out about openings for my latest online classes and special events. That's bobbyosinski.com. Now, if you're into guitar pedals and guitar pedal effects, you know that there's a lot of the same thing out there and people keep on trying to reinvent the wheel. So what do you do? Well, you go to alternative packaging. And in fact, there's some very unique packages that have come out. For instance, there's a band called Brother O oh Brother, and they have a new album out on Rominous Records. It's called Skinwalker, and it's coming out on vinyl. Why is that significant? Well, because they teamed up with ADD pedals to make these records into effects pedals. <laughs> yeah, it's a double album, so they're actually two different effects pedals built in to the record itself. There's one that's an overdrive boost and another is a delay. Here's the thing. Yes, they actually play, 
but you need a turntable with enough space for them to fit on because each record is an inch, an inch and a half thick or so for the electronics. So that means that the record is really, really thick and you need a special turntable or at least one that can accommodate that. And the fact of the matter is, the effects pedals don't work unless they're on a turntable as well. So you really need that. The cost is $400 for both of them and there will only be 35 pair made. They're going to ship in the spring of 2023, and as of right now, you can place your order. Now, that's not the only unique one. Not that long ago, there was the slice of pie fuzz that was shaped like a slice of pizza and actually looked like one. It came in two different types, pepperoni or cheese, and it was delivered in a small pizza box. This was $199 and shipped on National Pizza Day. So look for more unique packages for pedal effects in the future. My guest this week is Grammy Award-nominated engineer-producer Justin Courtlew. Justin started his career working with Chuck Ainley at Soundstage Studios in Nashville before moving to Los Angeles to work with mixmaster Mike Shipley. He eventually teamed up with artist-producer Tommy Hendrickson, and in 2008, they moved their operation back to Nashville and began working with legendary producer Bob Ezrin. Through the years, Justin has worked with a wide variety of artists, including Paul McCartney, Alice Cooper, Keisha, Taylor Swift, Fish, Vince Gill, Andrea Bocelli, U2, Randy Travis, Kiss, Will I Am, Lady Gaga, and many others. During the interview, we spoke about personal studio dynamics, working with legendary producer Bob Ezrin, his hybrid mixing technique, the importance of a sonic signature, and much more. I spoke with Justin via Zoom from his studio in Nashville. I want you to take me back to when you started in the business. How did you get going? Where are you from, first of all? Are you from Nashville? So, no, no. I'm. Although, at this point, I've lived here longer than anywhere else i think but so i started off uh just outside of pittsburgh in a town called greensburg pa and um you know i was always in music uh i i played trombone and uh i was pretty heavy into that i played in a lot of symphonies and uh kind of outside of high school you know when i was 17 i um i played with a youth symphony that was picked to play in the world youth musicale and uh in australia so i flew to australia with them and played in the sydney opera house and sydney town hall and we went to canberra and played in in uh, uh one of the universities there and it was it was great i i enjoyed it i i didn't have the love of playing like i, I think you need to go and do that professionally you know but also, I played guitar in a metal band and in <laughs> another little jam band. And, you know, I was, I just would race home so I could fire on the amp and, and play guitar. I would just play until it was dinner time and then go back upstairs and, and play. So I was absolutely in love with, you know, uh, kind of rock, grunge, um, you know, all the stuff that was popular at the time just playing music and, and I was big into, you know, the guitar heroes like Joe Satriani and Eric Johnson and dream theater and all that. So, uh, that and the love of looking at the catalogs, like, 
you know, at the time Thoroughbred was big and Mars Music and and Guitar Center wasn't quite what it is now, you know, back then. But I would just I would live to go to the guitar stores and try out all the guitars and 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 the gear without even knowing what stuff was. Uh, I had gear lust. You know? <laughs> and so that hit me. And then uh, there was a a senior, I was a junior and there was a senior in high school who decided to go into recording. And, and at the same time I had received uh, a free copy of Mix Magazine. For some reason, I had no idea what a recording engineer or producer did or was or, or anything, you know, uh, other than a, you know, little four track demo that we did in, <laughs> in the garage. I had no experience with uh, anything audio. So I was looking through the pages and I, I, I saw this, oddly enough, an SSL console and I saw that there was a little computer screen in it. And I thought, what, what the hell is that? Is there a computer in a console? I have, and my mind was blown. And, and then I found out that this friend of mine in, in the marching band was, was going to Middle Tennessee State University for recording. So, um, I just asked him a bunch of questions and then when it was time to tour, I went, I went down there and they had a pretty amazing facility, uh, you know, at the time. And, and that way I could still get a four year degree and that made, made my parents happy, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So I went, went down to, it's just, just South of Nashville. I've been there. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 So, um, yeah, I went there and, and fell in love and pretty quickly found the community in in uh at the school there and see everyone would go home if you weren't a recording major or business in aerospace you would go home on the weekends do your laundry or go to UT and watch the hockey game, or not, not hockey game you go to UT and watch the football game and uh so the the campus was bare except for musicians and uh and so we'd all get together and try to one up each other with, you know, check out this riff on, on Toto four, you know, check out this groove on this fish record or, you know, whatever, whatever it was. And, and we'd just be music geeks and get together and jam out. And, and I, I started interning at a record label and just, uh, in Murfreesboro on the square called sponge bath records, which was awesome. Uh, they had a band called self, and the Katie's and fluid ounces and the features. And, you know, uh, a lot of them got major league or major league, <laughs> major label deals. And, uh, and it was a pretty awesome label until it didn't work anymore. So it, it was great experience and, and, you know, kind of nice to get my feet wet in the, in the music industry. I didn't even have a car. I would go on Fridays and ride my bike from, from my dorm, even if it was raining or, or we, we didn't get a whole lot of snow, but a couple of times it snowed, I'd ride my bike. My hands would be, you know, wet and frozen, but I loved it. It was, it was just so much fun to kind of be a part of it. Yeah. But you were used to the cold from Pennsylvania. Yeah. You know, it's amazing how quickly you acclimate to a warmer environment. You know? I'm from Pennsylvania too, but the other side of the state. Oh, you're, uh, you're a flatlander. No, no, actually the mountains. Oh. Yeah. Oh, okay. I, it, so you're in um uh, the assistant engineer here is from Altoona. So um No, I'm closer to Pottsville, which is 
an hour and a half. Is that where Yingling's from? Yes, as a matter of fact. As a matter of fact, I've (laughs) taken the tour. It's great. Yeah. But, but you know, you're right. I began to tour at the band, and I quickly got out of there and saw the rest of the world and realized I didn't want to stay there anymore. And then after a while, it was like, I want to go where it's warm. And yeah, (laughs) there's there's only so many places to be in the music business. Actually, there's more now, but, you know, it's back then. Yeah, but especially you had... L.A., Nashville, and New York. And, and, and London. In London, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I still have not been to London yet. Oh, yeah, you'll like that. I was just in Liverpool a couple of weeks ago. You know, it's kind of a holy grail to go for the Beatles and everything, but actually it's a great city, and I didn't do many Beatles things and still had a wonderful time. So I really? highly, highly recommend going there. It's, it's very cool. Yeah, well, th- that's on the bucket list. The, I the bucket list, and I almost got to do it. Um, uh, is recorded Abbey Road, mm. obviously. Uh, I w- when I was working with Bob Ezrin, there was he was producing a uh, an, a U two live at Abbey Road for the BBC, and um, and I had plane tickets booked. I had uh, my bags packed, and it was the day before I was flying out. I was super excited and uh bob called me up and he said well, I, I can't do it i was like whoa why not and he, he said well with the unions and everything there were already seven engineers for this thing <laughs> and i would be the eighth you know because you two had their guys uh the the video crew had their guys the uh abbey road had their guys so it was like he couldn't justify me flying out there and you know all of, all of the expenses and and just the people in the control room so uh, i said okay I, I get it i get it but i got to work on it which which was still cool yeah but not quite in the capacity that i was well, you may working. get another chance to go out there so you never know yeah yeah yeah, yeah. i'm gonna find a way yeah um, <laughs> i'll find an excuse you were an assistant to uh, chuck ainley at soundstage for a while so tell me about that yeah, well, uh, I wasn't actually an assistant. I did my internship with him. Huh. So I, my first internship was, was with Bill Vorndick, which uh, which he recently passed, and he was just a, a gem of a human being and, and did so much for me, and I learned so much from him. The first day that I was interning with him, we were over at uh, Soundstage and uh, uh, with Chuck, because Chuck was mixing a Jerry Douglas uh, record and Bill had recorded it and they were transferring from the D uh, DA 88s and <laughs> mm. into Chuck's new endo rig. And, um, and so I got to meet him briefly then. And then when my internship was finishing with, with Bill, just not knowing anything about the music industry, uh, I just called Chuck at the studio and said, Hey, I'm Justin. We met a while ago. And he thought I was Justin Niebank at first. <laughs> I said, hey, no, different Justin. Would you want an intern? And he was so caught off guard that I, I think he just had no other answer than yes. Because he'd never had an intern before. And I don't think he really wanted one. But but he said yes. And then, um, you know, it, it was a little, I was green. I was a little shaky at, at the beginning. But but then the turning point was there was a um, there was a refrigerator in the back and in the freezer 
didn't have the right size ice bucket. And so one day I thought, you know what, I'm going to find the number on the, on the little sticker on the inside and I'll, I'll call him up and, and just order one for him. And so I asked for his credit card and he's like, what's this for? I said, I'm going to get a new ice bucket. And that changed everything. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it's the little things, but he appreciated kind of, um, you know, noticing that there was a problem and taking the initiative and all of that. And so, um, yeah, then he, uh, he vouched for me to get, get the night guy gig at, at soundstage. But, but sitting there with him and you know taking notes and just absorbing everything that he was doing uh at the time was it was priceless and hearing hearing the sounds soloed uh hearing what effects he was putting on things he's such a master at uh you know getting really clean sounds and placement and then the uh, getting the right effects so so it doesn't sound affected you know, the reverbs and, and, you know, chorusing and delays and, uh, but just to add a little bit of movement and texture to the mix, it was absolutely phenomenal. And then the way that he would ride, uh, all of the instruments, um, at the time he was, you know, fully on the console. So, you know, spending time and getting the mutes right to, you know, get all the noises out in between. And, you know, it was the first time that I had seen uh, any kind of parallel compression. You know, he would parallel the, um, you know, kind of a, 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 a super compressed kick and snare, um, you know, into the mix. And uh, yeah, it was it was pretty, um, it was a really good learning experience. And then also how to handle myself around, you know, clients and where, you know, what the roles were and who takes priority, you know, that, that's a very important thing in the studio dynamics. Uh, you know, who gets the comfy chairs? <laughs> it wasn't me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, uh, yeah, it was just, he's such a great guy and, and an amazing mixer and producer, uh, and tracking engineer. Um, it, it was a really, uh, great learning experience, uh, for me in, in all facets. I bet. Uh, and I can understand why he didn't have an intern because he never went through that himself. He wasn't an assistant ever or an intern anywhere. He kind of learned on his own and got good on yeah. his own, which is pretty amazing because the finding that reference point of what, what everything sounds like is so important as you, yeah. you well know, and cause you, yeah. you heard it from him. And uh, I think that speeds up your, your learning curve quite a lot. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, uh, yeah, he, he found his way of doing it and, and man, is it good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's really, really good. How did you make it out to LA with, uh, Mike Shipley? So, yeah, it was kind of a, an odd series of events. And, uh, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, everyone, if you're in the right spot and in the right moment, you'll have an opportunity. And then as, you kind of have to make sure that you don't waste it. And I was, I was working the the night shift at the studio, you know, doing session setups and turning the rooms and getting everything cleaned. And I had gotten in one day and Billy Decker was uh, working with Crystal Bernard, who was, she was on the TV show wings mm. uh, and, and a bunch of, you know, lifetime TV movie, you know, and uh, she was doing, another record it was a demo 
uh, that she was going to shop and, and she had, uh, before that she, she did a duet with Peter Cetera that I think did pretty well. She had another record that Mike had actually mixed. And, um, and so Billy, he, he had to get to his son's hockey game. And so he, he came up to me and said, Hey man, would you mind going in there and, and, you know, recording crystal, it won't take very long. Just punch her in and out. Don't say anything. Don't no direction or anything like that. So I go in there and, uh, it was, uh, crystal, her manager and, and me. And, uh, and she was starting, you know, she was doing take after take and starting to get a little frustrated and, and everything. And so I, I eventually popped in and said, you know what, why don't you try to emphasize this word and this word lay off of this one, take a breath here, you know, a couple of just small, um, little notes. And then we started to get a little routine together and, uh, and she really loved it. And so we started working really well together and, and we ended up working until about 3 AM and, uh, I still had like all the trash to take out and everything. And she helped me with the tr- with uh, the garbage. And, that's awesome. And yeah, it was really cool. And, and so then, um, we just, she and I finished, uh, the rest of the record and, um, and it was, it took over, you know, three weeks or so. And there were crazy hours that we were doing 36 hour days. <laughs> and, and I didn't even know, but she, at the time she was dating Mike Shipley. And so about halfway through the process, uh, she started sending mixes out to Mike and then Mike thought they were, you know, okay, at least to make notes on and everything. So I started having these long conversations with him on the phone. I'm like pinching myself going, are you kidding me? This is Mike Shipley on the other end. This, yeah. this is crazy. He mixed everything that I like. And, uh, and, and so then at the end of the process, uh, Crystal still had a, a lot of songs that she wanted to record and, and Mike just didn't have any time to work on it. And so he called me up and, and asked me if I'd want to move out there and, and work with him. And, you know, it was such a shock to me and I'd, I, I'd been out there just once, you know, in, in high school on a marching band trip. Uh, but other than that, I had, you know, I had never been out there. And so, they actually moved me out and found me a, a a nice little guest house on the back of a this old lady's house. It wasn't anything like fancy. It was a studio apartment, but um, but it had a nice yard, had a, an orange tree, and yeah. So I, I was in way over my head when I got there, and uh, and it was just it, it was audio boot camp. It was awesome and it was intense. I started off working with Crystal, but then, you know, she got busy with other things and Mike was getting just absolutely slammed. And so he needed help and I was still really green and uh, really nervous being in that situation. And um, he was going to hire someone else to do all of the editing and prep work and, and all of that. But then his regular assistant said, no, give, give Justin a shot. And so we had a shootout with editing and his editing wasn't just like, you know, clean up the noises and no, it was the mutt Lang 
you know, every single note on every single track needs to be perfect. Every, you know, every delay trail on the guitar has to be chopped up, put on the grid. If there's a, a, a better note played on the bass, like, you know, if the bass player played an E and the third chorus sounded a little bit better than the all of the other ones, you grabbed that and you replaced each one. Uh, I mean, it was it was that level of perfection. And so, I, you know, I had watched uh, Brian, his assistant, do that for, for a few months. And uh, so I went in there and, and took my track and edited as best I could at the time. And thankfully I won <laughs> the shootout. So then I got to be that guy. So I would just get the hard drives in from whatever client. And it was kind of secretive. You know, I had my room upstairs and we had built a studio out of a, out of a house where I had my own little room for editing and overdubs. And then Mike had his mix room downstairs. And, and the coolest thing is, uh, we had a KVM switch on the monitors so I could hit the switch and look at his session. Then I had his mix come up on an external. And so I got to switch over and, and listen to what he was doing. So when I was taking a break or if I didn't have anything to do, I just sit and listen and watch Mike mix without having to bother him, without, you know, having to ask. And I challenged myself to say, okay, I'm seeing what track he's on. I'm seeing the EQ and the compression and everything. What is changing and why? And, you know, at first you, I couldn't hear anything. I didn't know what was, you know, what he was doing, but then like, I started to listen really deeply and um, and I would notice like, okay, the rooms, he's, he's bringing up the mid range in the rooms and what's that doing? Okay. That's, that's adding a little, little bit of body to the, to the drums or, you know, helping the decay or the internal groove on the, on the snare, whatever it was. And it was, I would pay anything for that experience, but I was getting paid to do it. Um, and I wish I knew a little bit more, uh, I wish I was at the point where I am now, where I I could really understand what what he was doing. But it it was in, in the same way as Chuck being able to find that. Uh, I forget what did you call it the kind of like the reference point. Yeah, yeah. Of yeah, uh, uh, of the sound and what what a pop record sounds like and what it should sound like. That that was the standard then, and um, it was absolutely amazing and then doing all of the editing and everything um uh like day in and day out 12 hours a day it was a chop builder to say the least and so i I was really thankful for that opportunity boy yeah that's a great one how did you make it back to nashville then so uh after a few years with mike he was getting all of his work from uh, Maverick. He was doing all the Maverick mixes. And then when Maverick went away, uh, all of a sudden he got, he had a pretty big dry spell. And um, and it, it was a weird time in the music industry. You know, they were laying off so many people, dropping so many bands. So, you know, and he had gone through a divorce that was, you know, pretty taxing and, and all that. So there was just, a point where he he flew to Hawaii to do a record. He was mixing a record there, and uh, and it was just one of those 
things where you know it was he said mate i'm i'm just hemorrhaging money right now uh i'm not i'm not working like i was so uh you know if if i need you i'll call you but you know i just can't afford you anymore so i was like i understand so i i immediately went over to to a producer that i'd met through him uh tommy henriksen and just that day i started working with tommy and we were developing artists and um and that was kind of an amazing process too um you know we would work on these songs and kind of in a vacuum and then they would get a deal and there was one in, in particular the audio club where um i mean we had it out of nowhere became the number two most requested on z100 and uh which is the biggest pop station in the in the country and all of a sudden we were doing showcases. I was doing live sound at, at, you know, these arenas and, you know, big venues and, and then Jimmy Iovine was interested. And so I got that going. I didn't have anything to contribute. Tommy was just like, you'll never get to do this again. So come on with me. Yeah, yeah. And it was cool. I got to sit in on a meeting with Jimmy Iovine at, uh, at Interscope and they had the prototypes for the beats by Dre. And, uh, it was, it was pretty, that was pretty surreal. Uh, and they, he ended up signing the band and six months later they got dropped, but, uh, it was still an amazing experience. And then, uh, that's when the housing crash happened. And, you know, uh, there was one day and I, I think, think this is true. This may need to be fact-checked, but, uh, I remember one day we had an artist signed to Geffen and Geffen dropped 50 of 80 artists in a day or like a week or something. So it was just the, the, the music industry was just decimated at that point. So I, I told Tommy, I said, they're always making music in Nashville. It's music city. So why don't we go and check that out? And so after a couple of visits, uh, we made our way back to Nashville. And then that first week we met, Bob Ezrin. And then that's, that started for me a 10 year relationship with Bob. Talk about <laughs> legend. Jeez. Yeah. Yeah. He, uh, he's done a few things Yeah, and, uh, I didn't know what I was getting into. You know, he's Bob's intense. Yeah. I don't know if you've heard any stories, but he is, he is intense. He's, he's a, you know, a great person. And you know, when, when the red light goes off and, and, you know, you're done for the day, like the jokes that he tells and like, he's, he's a very charismatic and, and, you know, fun and funny person to be around. But when you're working, it is, I mean, you better be focused or else you will get destroyed. And, uh, so he was, he was interested in a band that we had developed in, in LA called, uh, runner runner. And, um, he Bob was running a a, a record label here in, in Nashville and uh, he wanted to meet with Tommy and uh, and then he and I started talking while we were there and it, they ended up not not signing the band but Bob wanted a guy who worked in kind of the uh, the the LA workflow um, and I had just come from you know working with Mike and I was well-versed in that Mike and Tommy too. We worked quickly. We did a lot of overdubs, uh, you know, 
one or two tracks at a time building parts and uh and bob really liked that so he put tommy and i on just kind of helping out on a, a, a lou reed peter gabriel collaboration kind of it was it was the peter gabriel scratch my back where other artists covered peter gabriel's songs and peter covered theirs um and uh yeah it was lou reed doing salisbury hill it was pretty cool <laughs> uh i don't know if if that made it if anything made it on the record but it solidified that relationship and then after a little while tommy ended up playing guitar for alice cooper and bob just started using me for everything you know so we did a bunch of alice cooper records uh deep purple fish andrea bocelli kristen chenoweth uh the two cellos and hollywood vampires and just you know yeah. a huge assortment of uh different artists a book publisher had uh, approached me about doing a book with bob basically his biography his autobiography and you know co-writing it with them because i'd done the one of those for ken scott Bob thought about it and thought about it and he was into it and then he decided he didn't want to put his life in a book. <laughs> you and, know, I actually think I remember him talking about was that was that like 2012, 13? Yeah, 14, yeah, somewhere like in there. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I re I ac absolutely remember that. Yeah. And, and it's he was sore about it, I remember. It, it's a shame because it, it would have been a lot of fun. Well, for me, you know, it would have been a lot of fun. But oh, yeah. But also just the fact that there's so much good information and good stories and everything that would be a blast to read. The stories. It's unbelievable, the stories that, that he has, especially now I'm a sucker for the record plant stories. Yeah. Uh, those old record plant stories are priceless and I, I there should be a movie or a book or something about the record plant because the culture there and the music that was recorded and the the people the the producers and uh engineers that came out of that place are <laughs> i mean they're at the top of the top yeah yeah and um yeah i feel like there's a lot of uh you know historical stuff there too that's pretty pretty amazing yeah yeah well i hope he decides one day to do it there's so much more we can talk about but i do want to talk about gear for a little bit uh, hey i love gear yeah yeah <laughs> let's dig in so tell me about where you're at there first of all so so this is a studio soul train sound studios so johnny reed he's an artist that i worked with with bob he's a canadian artist he's he's huge in canada one of the best singers you will ever hear. He's got this like Joe Cocker meets Bruce Springsteen, Rod Stewart kind of vibe. And, you know, with no warm up, he'll just do one pass and it's perfect. Mm. You know, just, just the soul and the energy. And, uh, I mean, he's so good. So he had the opportunity to buy, um, Randy Scruggs's old studio. Randy was sick and uh was looking to liquidate you know just in case anything were to happen and sadly two days after we had closed uh randy had taken a turn for the worst and um uh and, and he passed so johnny kind of made a promise to him 
that we weren't going to turn it into condos or office space or anything like that. We were going to have it making music again. And so we took about 19 months uh, of renovation, keeping the original footprint and as much of the original studio that we could, but it was in bad shape. We still have all the mics and, and, you know, uh, a, a good bit of the gear. We're getting our EMT 250 repaired that, that we got from him. Oh boy. That's a good one. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah. I, I did not think it was going to be fixable, but th there's a guy Beamish audio in, in, uh, Cleveland yeah, that, yeah. that actually does fix them. So, uh, yeah. So Johnny is an artist and doesn't know anything about, and doesn't want to know anything about, you know, basically how the sausage is made in the yeah. engineering realm. He doesn't, yeah. uh, doesn't know anything about gear or whatnot. Although I, I'm sure he's, he's learned a bit. So I was looking for a room. It was time for me to kind of spread my own wings and, and start my own career outside of, you know, Bob. It's, it's, it's hard to, you know, build your name when you're working with such a legendary uh, producer and, and, and person, you know, so it just all kind of happened at the same time. And he's Johnny said, well, I'm going to make all my records here. Uh, you're looking for a room. Why don't you lend your knowledge of gear and, and studio? Um, and let's make a, an awesome room and that'll be your home base. And that worked for me. So yeah, I was given a, a budget and got to get all my favorite pieces. <laughs> okay. So was, just a quick rundown. What did you get then? Okay. So, well, you can see, um, behind me, it's an SSL 4000 E and, uh, which is my, my favorite SSL. I, the, the EQs are just very yeah. musical, extremely useful. Uh, the compressors sound great. They, you know, they're like DBX. They have character. They're functional and useful. And for my workflow, uh, having an SSL is, is great. So when I'm tracking, I can do monitor side EQ and compression if I don't want to commit it. Uh, but then if I like it, I can just, you know, put it in the channel path and, and record it. And uh, yeah. And, and then we were looking at a, a, a Neve 80, I think it was an 8028 or I forget how many buses it was, but uh, it was a, it was a nice console, but it was only 24 channel, uh, 24 by 24. So, you know, 24 uh, record side and then 24 monitor side. And it wasn't, it wasn't big enough for the, and functional enough for the way that I typically work. So we were able to save a bundle. We found this in East Nashville. Well, Johnny found it on Craigslist in oh. East Nashville. <laughs> Only in Nashville yeah. do you find an SSL in like mid condition, uh, <laughs> you know, just a few blocks away on Craigslist. So, um, so that was one of the big purchases. The first gear purchase that, I, uh, that I made was, uh, an RCA BA six a, uh, because that's what Mike was using on his vocals. And, you know, a good bit of it was just, was to give honor to, to Mike. Cause he had, you know, he had passed, uh, several years before and um and he meant so much to me and in, in my career so so i wanted to kind of you know pay tribute to him but also it's an amazing piece of gear one of my favorite pieces yeah uh it just makes everything sound bigger and there's a plug-in that um 
uh, Acoustica Audio makes. Uh, Greg Wells kind of helped to develop it. Uh, the El Ray. And uh, so you, you can get it in plug-in form, but it's <laughs> it's so much better in real yeah, life. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, so I got, got that. Um, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the uh, Undertone Audio mic pre's. Um, they are absolutely amazing. They, uh, so, uh, how am I blanking on his name? Um, I'm thinking Brian Virtue, but it's not Brian Virtue. Um, uh, wow. I just totally, um, he, he, he mixed all the Smash Mouth records. Wow. I'm completely blanking on it. Um, anyway, he developed these, um, Mike Prees and, uh, he had his choice of Neves APIs, um, anything that he wanted, but he was like, why can't we just have them all in one chassis? Like just make it easy. And so he developed these pre's that with, you can have no, uh, input, no, no input transformers, no output transformers, just completely clean. And they sound great. Or you can add just the input transformer, you can add the output transformer and the input transformer. You you have um, uh, you can change the impedance uh, to 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 match the mic. You there's a button called load which adds upper harmonics to it, so you can make them sound super colored or super clean. There's even a a, a 10 dB pad on the output, so you can drive the transformer a, a little bit without having to run it through the console and bring bring the output down. Yeah, so yeah. you just you can do everything in the box there. Uh, it's so smart. Um, oh, I almost had his name. Oh, well, it'll, it'll come to you. Are you mixing through the console? So um, just because of the uh, the workflow and the recalls and everything, the, the way that I run it is, um, so I'll mix in the box, but I'll do hardware inserts uh, in, in Pro Tools. And so I've got a, a list of, different signal chains that I'll use. And uh, so I run a lot of the stuff through the console. And then when I get all the sounds that I like, I, I see the gear is kind of like, it's a color palette, but it's like broad strokes. So I don't get too specific with, you know, the EQs and, and compression. Well, I mean, compression, I get pretty specific on it, but, uh, but I, I look at that as my color. And then as soon as I kind of get the base for the mix, I'll just select the tracks and commit up to this insert. And so, so I'll get all of that color, uh, all of the textures and, and, and the sound of the gear. And then I could just mix inside pro tools. And, uh, and then I just do, you know, double click and, and can make some quick recalls. So, you know, you know, for workflow, it's great. So I get the, I get the vibe of, uh, of all of the outboard gear, but, without having to, you know, spend hours recalling mixes for, you know, a half a dB up on a vocal or, you know, whatever. So yes and no. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so I don't do the standard mix, but, uh, but I definitely, it's a huge part of my mixing uh, pr uh, process. So there's so much analog that you're doing besides the digital. Are there plugins that you use that you like, that you favor? Yeah. I, yeah. I've got a bunch of plugins that I love. The Fab Filter stuff's fantastic. Uh, the Massenberg Design Works uh, EQs 
are uh, I use them almost on every track. That's my uh, that's my cleanup tool because you can get so specific. And I mostly do um, uh, I mostly like notch out or or, or do my uh, kind of cleanup and uh, subtractive EQ on those. That's usually my first instance uh, on the plugin, so I can kind of get the garbage out, stuff that's ringing. I find it super easy to pinpoint a frequency because you if you hit the button like each band has a, a little colored button like a little red circle so you hit that and then it, it turns into a, kind of a, a an extreme peak and so you can sweep the frequency and find out you know what's ringing or what uh what you don't need and then i can take some of that out and then that alone will clean up your mix and and you know, help things come alive pretty quickly. And then I can start adding my color once I get my bass. Then the fab filter stuff is unbelievable. Uh, I love their compressor. I love the the diamond, dynamic EQ on the Pro-Q mm. 3 yeah, is great, amazing. Uh, the Saturn is really cool for some color. I just started using the reverb and the timeless. Uh, and those are really cool. Yeah, I'm a big fan of... All of that stuff. Speaking of reverb, so uh, what do you favor? There's a, a company called Relab that makes some really good stuff. The uh, plugin called the Sonsig has some really cool reverbs. I've got kind of a l- super long, spacey reverb that I use for like reverb throws to kind of accent one word or two words. And uh, that, that I use almost all the time. The uh, UAD... 140 is awesome we actually got a 140 an actual uh plate from the record plant in new york because i'm such a fan it's it was in bad shape we're getting it repaired but um probably in the next month it'll be ready but until we have that the the uad stuff sounds great uh the uad uh ams for the ambience and then you know depending on the mix the non-lin is you know (laughs) great Yeah. yeah it's that sound other reverbs, uh, the the Relab, I forget what it's called, but it's uh, basically a TC6000. Oh, yeah. That has its place a lot. And, uh, uh, oh, the Valhalla. Valhalla Vintage Verb and the Vintage Plate. Those are killer plugins for 50 bucks a piece. Yeah. They're, yeah. they're unbelievable. I love those. Uh, so th- those are the main reverbs that, that, I, that I use. And then Arverb. Uh, that that's great. Do you have any techniques, tricks that you keep on using? You find yourself using every mix, parallel compression, for instance, or stuff like that. Yeah, I use a lot of parallel compression, um, and uh, ma- mainly on the drums. You know, just to help it give the, the impact and the energy. Uh, I'm when I mix, I'm always looking for uh, the biggest trick is listening to the song and finding the moments and just kind of rolling up your sleeves and and riding those up and figuring out what you maybe don't need because a lot of times that there's so much that's thrown at the track that in the mix it just gets kind of cluttered so kind of being selective and finding those musical moments panning I, I like to use a lot of you know hard panning left and right but finding kind of equal and opposite energies so you kind of get some left right movement in the image but yeah, as far as parallel compression goes, I like to set up, uh, you know, I've got 
speaking of gear, inward connections, uh, one of their early vac racks. Oh yeah. And, yeah. uh, yeah. So I use that as my, uh, drum crush and, uh, it, that's fantastic. So, so I have that. I, I usually just blend kick and snare. I don't like to get the cymbal wash from that cause it can get kind of out of control. And then I'll, this is a trick from Shipley. He had a fat. So that he would use as his, as another. So he used the ones he had DBX one sixty ones, which were transform or maybe not transformers, but uh, they were unbalanced because he, he yes. got a deal on them. Yes. Right. And, I remember uh, those. Yeah. 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 So he, I think he put in some balancing transformers or, or, or something to, to kind of up the, the level a little bit, but the, uh, he would use those as his drum crush and then a fat. So just to kind of give a little bit of warmth to everything. So I'll, I'll, I'll do a blend adding in some of the overheads and, and the rest of the tracks and run into the fat. So to give a, you know, a bit more of that body. And, uh, and then I've got this, I bought it from David Kamuski, uh, who's over at, he runs addiction sound and he works with Jonathan Kane and, and a ton of other artists, amazing engineer. And he just was getting rid of it for like 150 bucks. And he's like, I don't even know if this thing works, but it's got this sound. If you want it, I was like, yeah, I'll give it a shot. And so it's a CBS. Sorry. I have to look at it. I think it's a 440, the CBS volume X 410. And you know, it's, doesn't have any knobs on it you have to take the, the faceplate down yes and, i remember those yeah. yes vaguely and it yeah it, they don't i wouldn't sound say it sounds good <laughs> it, <laughs> it kind of like it takes all the all the super low end out and it it kind of decimates the the top end it is almost like you're like you put a pillow over the speaker you know but i tell you what if uh, so i'll send kick and snare to it and it it has this low mid distortion, uh, and I, I don't. I just look over and make sure that the needle's just getting pegged, and uh, it is the coolest sound. <laughs> oh my god! And I've uh, I've kind of replicated it with plugins. If I'm you know, if the mix doesn't have the budget you know for the for the studio, if I you know if I'm just working at home or or in a smaller room, um, and uh, I, I use the RC20, just like the retro color plugin, mm. and and something else, maybe the the Omni Channel, and kind of simulate a, a similar thing. But that piece, and it might be broken. <laughs> it, right. it, it might just not work yeah, right. Yeah. Good, don't um, touch it then. Yeah, I yeah. There, there is a hands off, do not touch <laughs> sign on it. <laughs> that is, it's just special. That's so funny. And then. Uh, as far as tricks go, I mean, I don't do a whole lot of like crazy tricks. Um, you know, I, I kind of, I'm a little more, I guess, old school in the way that, you know, I'll start off not really listening to a whole bunch of compression on, or any compression on the tube, uh, two bus and I'll get the mix right and make sure that it's, it's got the energy and, and, you know, the moves that I like, and, and then kind of closer to the end i'll start adding in some you know two bus things you know i'll, I'll do eq on the two bus and and then i use uh, we, we picked up the hardware piece too but the spl iron mm, yeah. is fantastic awesome. I, I love the plugin uh the plugin alliance 
SPL iron is amazing. And we got the hardware piece and it's just amazing that what it does to the ability to, there's a switch that says air base and it adds some top and some bottom in after the compression. And, uh, and it's a, like a sweet top end and it's not too much. And the low end is nice and, and, and um, it's, it's not out of control. It's just a, a little bump there, or you can go the other way and, and it, does the opposite and it's called tape. So it kind of, you know, rounds off the edges a bit, but on the plugin, you can add a little bit of width. If you want, you can, um, you can kind of mono the low end to whatever fre frequency you want. So you have a, a bit more kind of modern adjustments, uh, to the mix with that. And you can contour your sound. You can do MS compression on, on that. So, um, so yeah, that's, that's usually on my uh, two bus. And then, you know, if it's a poppy thing, I might add uh, the OTT. I don't know if you've used that at all, but, um, you know, just add a little bit of, you know, whatever it does. Yeah, yeah, right, right. <laughs> you yeah. know, upwards or downwards compression. Yeah. And, and uh, yeah, I'll, I'll always print one version that I'll send to mastering that doesn't have a limiter on it. And then another one that, I'll send to the client just so it's matching mastered material, you know, and that I'll use the pro L two, uh, from fab filter. Cause it's just awesome. Yeah. Yeah. That works really well. Last question. What's the best piece of advice that maybe someone gave to you or you learned along the way? Oh man. Before I forget, first I have to say Eric Valentine is the... Uh, <laughs> yes, right, right. <laughs> he is the guy who started Undertone Audio and uh, also has an amazing Unfair Child. It's a yes. fair child with additional... It's awesome. Uh, so we've got one of those too. But uh, the, the best piece of advice, you know, Mike would always say, turn the knob till it sounds good. And... And then uh, th there was another mix that he was doing. And I looked at the EQ and it was like, he was adding 12 deep, like he maxed out the top end on a hi-hat. Now it was a really dull hi-hat and it was, you know, a big part of the sound. And then he, he took another instance of that EQ and added more of the top. And uh, I was like, wow. He's like, the knob goes to 12 for a reason, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> now, this is in very capable hands. You know, he uh, he wasn't afraid of EQ. He and Mutt both. Um, and I remember he was uh, moderating on, uh, at the time it was Gear Sluts, and now I think it's Gear Space. He was a moderator on there, and people would say, oh my God, I love, you know, what you did with Shania, you know, this mix sounds amazing. How did you do it? And then he would explain what he did and the EQ and the, you know, compression and everything. And then there would be people who would say, well, you're not supposed to use that much EQ or you're not supposed to use that much, you know, that you're doing it wrong. And it's like the guy, it, he has three diamond records in a row with Shania, you yeah, know, that's. Yeah. There is no so wrong, it, you know, it's just whatever there is works no wrong. Now, yeah. I mean, there are, there are good guidelines, especially when you're starting out. You know, you if you're doing a ton of EQ, then you maybe want to step back and go, okay, am I messing it up? Yeah. Uh, you know, to get perspective. But um, 
but Mike and, and Mutt, they were always mixing for, they weren't mixing for engineers. They weren't mixing for producers. They were mi- mixing, uh, he would always say, uh, mix for the guy who's pumping gas at the Shell station with a blown speaker. You know, that's, it's about the energy and the vocal and the song. And so much of the editing wasn't just for perfection. It was so that everything worked together and it was spread out so that the vocal was the feature. And I think that's, that's just so important. So the, the track has energy, the, uh, but it's one unit and it's all working together and it just um, elevates the vocal and the song. And then now this is also something that this isn't advice for me, but this is, I guess just the way that I think about it when I'm, when I'm mixing, I, I always try to at the beginning of the song, make a sonic statement. So, and this goes for production and for mixing, you know, those songs where you hear the first two licks or the first two notes and you go, Oh, I love this song. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's so important to like right off the bat, have a sonic signature that's going to give the song an identity. And, um, and so I, I try my best, you know, if I'm producing or if I'm mixing to, to do that, to say, okay, how are we going to make the statement in the first two measures? You know? Um, so I, I think, I think that's a pretty, pretty important thing to, to think of when you're mixing. You can find out more about Justin at justincourtlow.com. That's Justin, J-O-S-T-I-N-C-O-R-T-E-L-Y-O-U, justincourtlow.com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Remember that you can learn all about the latest in music, audio, and production news when you sign up for my newsletter at bobbyosinski.com. There you'll also find out about openings for my latest online classes and special events. That's bobbyosinski.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com, where you can find an Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyoinnercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-in form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Thank you.